So I, I want to just share with you, uh, before we sit, I, I want to share with you an instruction that um, I came across in the last couple of months. I was reading, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche has this three volumes, well, he doesn't have it, Acharya Judy Leaf has just um, edited his talks into three volumes, and I treated myself and got them. <clears throat> Trungpa Rinpoche. And um, I, he, he kind of breaks it down, and the three volumes are broken down into the what he calls Hinayana, which we call Theravada, and the Vajrayana and, and Mahayana um, paths. And so I started with the Theravadan path, and he was talking about... Um, uh, the shamatha and vipassana practice, which of course we understand as one practice, but sometimes is given as two separate instructions. And he made a suggestion that I tried and that I, th- I thought was really quite good, so I'll share it with you and please feel free to ignore it. But if you want to try it, I've, I think, I, I think it's, I've tried it with a few other people and some people report that it's very helpful, so I'm going to share it with you. And that is, you know, usually when we start with the breath in our shamatha practice, we start by, um, we, or, and we continue by paying attention to the breath from the beginning through the in-breath, from its beginning through its middle and its end, and then we see the pause, and then we start again with the out-breath from its beginning through its middle and its end, and that way our attention becomes rooted in the breath. He suggests something slightly different, he, a, a kind of um, uh, variation on the theme, which is to use the breath as the object, and yet what he suggests is that the emphasis of one's attention is on the outbreath. And what he suggests on the outbreath is that we pay attention from the beginning of the outbreath and we notice how it dissolves. To, towards its end. And then when the in-breath arrives, that becomes like a gap. And we start again with the out-breath, with the beginning of the out-breath, and we again notice the dissolution or the dissolving nature of the out-breath. And then the in-breath comes in, and it's like a gap again. And some people find that very helpful. Other people are really happy with paying attention through both, equally to both the in-breath and the out-breath. So I'll make that suggestion, and when we're, when, when we're talking with each other, I'd really like to hear um, how it is for you, if you found that helpful or not. Okay, any questions on that? Great. Yes, please. Um, what is it meant to help with? Attention. And what? And I'll just give you a hint. You know, it's like turning you to the back of the book so you get the answer, but it's okay. Um, so what I found for myself is that because there's a kind of resting on the in-breath and there's not a kind of grasping for attention, you know, for such a sustained period of time that there's a kind of relaxation on the in-breath and... Uh, for me, I found I find that really quite helpful, 
and I find that my attention becomes like ballast. The, the breath becomes like ballast for my attention rather than a kind of rooted anchor. So, who knows? For some people that's not true, but it might be true for one or two people in the room. So I thought I'd share it. Okay? Great. So, just a couple of instructions to sit comfortably and really pay attention to the body sitting here and knowing how it is. Paying attention to what you've brought with you from the day and seeing if you can allow it to be as it is. Letting go of whatever grasping or pushing away you may feel with whatever you've brought into the room. And then allowing a kind of arriving here, molecule by molecule. Sometimes we get very scattered in our attention, we get scattered in how we are here, on how we show up, in how we show up. So just to gather the molecules of the body and using that as a kind of metaphor for um, the atoms of the mind and gathering those and then noticing whatever moods of the mind there are whether it's joy or peace sorrow disappointment whatever anger whatever is there to notice it and see if you can gather the energy of the mind to come and be here to be present and whatever is there that's pulling the mind just to know you can set it aside for the moment and pick it up at the end of the evening and seeing if you can just allow a kind of arriving and gathering arriving and gathering and then a settling being here non-judgmentally with as much patience and determination as you can muster letting everything be just as it is presence here now So, as I said at the beginning, um, we are, uh, what I like to do on these Tuesday evenings when I come is to see what questions are, are there 
in your own practice, to really talk about your practice and to see if there's a way that we can either um, exchange together, because it's not as if you have all the questions and I have all the answers, right? Maybe you have all the answers and I have all the questions, but I but to not think that it's that's the way it's flowing, but let's see if we can do some inquiry together and see where we what we what we see and what we understand maybe a little bit more deeply. So please. Okay, hi, my name's Bill. Um, and uh, it's nice to be here. I'm a little nervous. Uh, it's a topic that's really uncomfortable for me. Uh, uh, but uh, it has to do with conflict. And um, I'm a pretty cool guy, except when it comes around conflict, and then I kind of fall apart. Um, and I, I live in a, I live with uh, two roommates, and one of them has turned our living room into his personal TV room. And like, I would love to have the living room back from time to time. Um, and so, like, I'm meditating, and the conversation I might have with him is like replaying itself in my head. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of like all the best ways to have the conversation. <laughs> and. Uh, it's just, uh, this is a small thing, but it can, you know, with other bigger things. Um, and so meditation in Buddhism has helped me with all, like, accept a lot of the things that I can't change, but around a lot of the things that I do need to take a stand someplace, mm-hmm. I, do I, I feel like I can't even take a stand while I'm meditating to tell myself, all right, just, you know, what do I tell myself? First off, when I'm meditating, and then how do I deal with the situation in the living room? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that question. And you know, I usually find that in the answers are usually in the questions. So when you said it's a small thing, and yet you know it it can be it can be indicative of much larger things. And how we deal with conflict, I think, is a really important question in a Dharma hall um, because just, just a kind of footnote before we talk about your specific situation um, I think in, in, in the Dharma in the way that we hear Dharma sometimes it can sound as if um, and, and you said it in your, in your articulation of your question it can seem as if what we're being taught is to just accept things exactly as they are. And um, what, there's a teaching that we call spiritual bypass, where we kind of have a spiritual bypass, you know, so we put a smile on our faces. Everything is fine. It's not a problem, right? If he wants to do that, it's not a problem. And yet we're seething inside, or there's rage inside, or there's anger, or... Um, or there's anxiety, or there's a feeling of, I don't know how to cope with this, I don't know how to deal with this, and yet we think that if we're good Dharma students, that we should just be such great meditators that we can totally let it go, right? So, I, so that's why I, I, I appreciate the question, because I think it applies to a lot of different kinds of situations. And of course, I'm not going to tell you what to do, Right? But we can talk about um, what you think is appropriate. 
and what has occurred to you in terms of um, how you feel you can approach this from the point of view of practice, right? I mean, you know, we can talk about it from all kinds of different points of view, but since we're here practicing together, how do you think you should approach it from the point of view of practice? Well, I try to just tell myself that, like, just come back to the breath, and um, and then this this too shall pass, you know, and, like, mm. uh, and then it doesn't. <laughs> right. So yeah. So that's in a way that's <laughs> so that's a great example of a spiritual bypass, right? Because what's predominant in your experience, right, in that moment, is not the breath. What's predominant? What's predominant in that in your experience in that moment? Uh, my my mind ratcheting on about more. How does your gut feel in that moment? Sick, kind of sick. And what's your emotional mood like in that moment? Serious. Serious. Heavy. No rage. No anger. I'm not comfortable saying that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is really a great place to start. Because when the Buddha taught mindfulness, he didn't say, concentrate on all of the beautiful states of mind. (laughs) Or just look at the breath, right? And just be with the breath. He said that there are four ways of establishing mindfulness. The first way is in the body. So in every situation, so, and he didn't say mindfulness is when you sit on the cushion. We're not trying to be, we're not training ourselves to be good meditators. Right? That might be a byproduct of what we do. What we're doing is we're training the mind to really be present in every single moment for what is true. So what's true in this moment is, first of all, the body. Right? That's the first way to establish mindfulness. So in this, in this space where there's anger or rage or anxiety or shame or blame or you know, all kinds of emotions... Something's happening in the body. And you said the gut felt tight, right? So how does the heart feel physically, not, not emotionally? Physically, how does, it, how does your heart feel when you talk about it? Uh, it races. Okay, so your heart races. So, and how about your head? How does your head feel? I feel like kind of like a headache. Kind of like? A headache, like a, a little tense. Like a headache. So tension. So that's the first place that you pay attention. The breath at that that point, and it's true not only in a situation like this, but in your meditation practice. If you're being with the breath and being with the breath and being with the breath, and then some really um, strong emotion hits you, you go to the body first. Right? So even sitting on the cushion, forget about your roommate and the television, but even sitting on the cushion, the first place is, what does my body feel like? Right? So the tension. So, fe- so you feel that. You feel the tension and you feel the tightness and you feel all of the ways in which the body... And you really, but I mean really pay attention. So you pay attention from moment to moment to moment, not just as a general kind of description, but the, the, the racing heart, the tight gut, the tension in the back of the neck really pay, that's the first thing you pay attention to, okay? 
So that's the first place he said to establish mindfulness. And the second place that we establish mindfulness is understanding the feeling that is produced from this situation. So is this pleasant, is it unpleasant, or is it neither? It's, it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. Do you know what unpleasant feels like? Yeah. What does unpleasant feel like? Unpleasant. <laughs> 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 uncomfortable. I usually just run away from it, so I, I don't like I like I run away from this conversation having with this guy. Uh, I remain. Uh, but so is it possible? So you were saying that when you were thinking about it, you can't even stand your ground in your meditation when you're thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a way to to stand your ground. The first the first way of feeling the body. In order to do that, you have to be still, right? So you, so you stand your ground, whether you're standing or sitting. You're standing your ground. And then you're feeling your feelings. This is really unpleasant. Now what makes it unpleasant is all the feelings in the body are making it unpleasant. And then is there a story in the mind? Right? Because the third way of establishing mindfulness is looking at the mind. And whatever mood of the mind is arising. So what, what are the moods of the mind that arise when you think about, even think about it, when he's not even here with the television, you're just thinking about it and look at how you're all, you know. So, what's the what's the mood of the mind? Kind of like stuff like uh, it's not fair. Uh, and, uh, so you're feeling victimized. Like a victim, and uh, mm-hmm. so is it possible kind to s- like a little what? Like bullied. Okay, great. This is great. So is it possible to simply sit in those feelings of unpleasantness? And now we're kind of fleshing out what feels unpleasant. It's this feeling of being bullied or, you know, all of these different ways or victimized. Can you actually sit with that? Because if you're going to approach it as a practitioner, that's the first thing that we do is before we act, before we make any decisions about anything or about the way we're going to respond or what we're going to say, to you, and you know, and the mind will be saying, oh, you need to say this, and you know, what's wrong with you? You never know how to stand your ground, and you, know, you do this all the time, and look at you. you know. So to actually be in, in the observer of all of that mental activity, to be the observer of the tightness in the gut, the racing, the, the beating of the heart, the tightness in the back of the neck, to, to feel the heat that comes from that, and then to feel, oh, this is really unpleasant. So what happens when you, when you experience unpleasant? Um, How do you react? Like disassociate, like, like, a, like, a, like I was saying, I usually well, one thing I was doing in meditating was thinking, like, arguing with myself, thinking of the best possible way I could save the conversation without, you know, like, using my intellect. Mm-hmm. To, like, come so, with, and how did, how did, was that working for you? It, it was like, by the end of the meditation, I was like, I can't believe that it's my meditation. Right. <laughs> right. And you didn't come up with an answer, right? Because right? you're asking the question. Well, so I, I think I have a better answer than when I started. 
started, but I still feel like worse than I like. I could never articulate it because I feel so like tied up. Right. So. So our ability to really be present for ourselves. So your ability to be present for all. Of, you know, we've been talking for um, about five, seven minutes, and you know, you weren't lacking in seeing what was happening in all of these different centers of your being. <laughs> So the ability to do that first, to really understand what you're feeling, first of all, is honoring to yourself. And secondly, when we really know the truth of what's happening, and I would, I would guess that you would like this to end, right? You'd like this to stop, right? You'd, you want him to stop that behavior and you want to stop feeling this unpleasant feeling. So to know all of that and to, and to see how when we're having unpleasant experience, the, the instinct is to want to push it away, to make it end, to make it go away, to not have to deal with it. I hate this, I don't want it. To just feel that struggle. Because do you know what that struggle is? It's the opposite of peace. Right? That struggle of, I don't want this to be like this, I want it to be some other way. And what, what happens when we're in the midst of that kind of struggle is we can't think straight. Because our minds are not peaceful. Our bodies are not peaceful. Our hearts are not peaceful. And when we're in that kind of state, it's impossible to think clearly, to see clearly, to understand what needs to be done. So our first task as practitioners is to really... You know, and in the beginning, when you're when you're really kind of learning how to do this, to really go through those four establishments of mindfulness: what am I feeling in my body? What is feel? What am I feeling in the heart? How? What are the thoughts? How? How is the mood of the mind? What's happening? To really go through that, and not just do it intellectually, but to actually pay, stay, uh, take the time and spend the time with yourself to really feel very deeply what you feel. You're honoring yourself, right? Because as soon as we go up into the mind with, I can't stand this and I want it to end and I could throttle him, we, we can't think. So all of our good intentions, and I hear your good intentions, about wanting to do it well and to be aligned with your practice, you will not be aligned with your practice unless you're present for everything that's happening internally. When you're present for what's happening internally, then the external actions align automatically because we know what's here, we know what's true. And when we, when we act in accordance with the truth, we're acting in alignment with our values, with our deepest value of knowing what is true, of being clear about what is happening. So what I would recommend is that if you really want to have a talk with him, is that before you do so, you spend a little bit of time with yourself first, so that you know what's happening with you first, so you understand where you're coming from, and so that you can express how you're feeling, right? Because you'll know how you're feeling. Out of all of the things I thought about telling him, it wasn't really about how I was feeling. No. It's about what he should do, right? <laughs> all the reasons it wasn't fair and the 
Right, right. Is that helpful? Yeah. Great. Thank you for the question. It's a really good one. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, it was unbelievably generous of you to share that because um, I, I obviously can't speak for everybody, but I would imagine that we all um, have those moments where we, we run away from ourselves because of the, the discomfort of whatever it is. And so you, you've, I'm sure, you've given a gift to me and I'm sure to many other people by your, your willingness to just be and be true in that moment. So thank you so much for that. Um, and uh, Gina, some of the things you were saying about um, literally just being present with the body really kind of segued into, I just wanted to actually give you kind of some feedback you said about the... Uh, the breathing practice that you uh, gave us at the at the beginning of the sit, and um, I found that I really uh, enjoyed it. And actually, let me rewind for a second and say uh, I've been meditating for a really long time, and I absolutely hate, can't stand, and run away from focusing on my breath. Um, I have a million other techniques that is probably the one that gives me the most discomfort. Um, and I think it's because I'm always breathing. I, there's never a moment when I'm not breathing. And so um, to try to focus on something that is always there, it's very easy to, for myself to get sidetracked in any number of other things and to kind of get discouraged because I haven't even realized, oh crap, I'm not thinking about my breath anymore. I'm thinking about, you know, the fact that my foot hurts or, you know, the fact that did I pay my credit card bill or any number of other things. And I sometimes don't even know how long I haven't been thinking about my breath anymore. Um, which then, of course, can lead to all of the feelings, the, you know, the frustration, and, oh, why am I even doing this? Or So I don't want to cut you off, but no, I no. want to allow time for as, oh, absolutely. as many questions I apologize. as you can. Um, so, yeah. But uh, so the, the thing that I really enjoyed about your pointer is that I'm always breathing, but I'm not always exhaling. And so the mm -hmm. idea that the exhale comes in a predictable cycle um, allows me to come back allows me to, you know, to, to giving myself that break gives my mind the chance to, to be refreshed and say, oh, okay. Beautiful. And it allowed me to stay with it longer. And that was probably the best breathing meditation that I've done Beautiful. ever. So thank Good. you so much. Thanks. Thank you, for, thank you for that feedback. I really appreciate it. And I also wanted to expand on that, that focusing on the out-breath was actually very helpful for me too because I feel like it ties into the whole idea that everything in life arises and passes away mm, beautiful so being able to focus on my you know my breath arising and then passing away it, it actually did help a lot oh good thank you. thank you thank you for that i appreciate hearing uh last night i was <clears throat> reading about um the four noble truths and i was concentrating on the fourth one which is the path uh, we know that we're involved in suffering and in discomfort and dis-ease in life and there's a path that's recommended, including things like the right livelihood and right, uh, <clears throat> right, right contemplation, right meditation, and right intention, things like that. I, I actually, I, I do meditate. Um, I try to every day, and I do 
focus on the breathing, but I honestly, and I, I have been doing it and I will continue to do it, but honestly, I just don't feel any, I don't feel the visceral connection between the process of focusing on my breath and how that can possibly contribute to alleviating my unhappiness, my, my suffering. Um, I know that during the process of breathing, I, it's, you're in the moment, and you're not, you're not concerned about the future, you're not fretting about the past and so forth, but I don't get the visceral connection between how this, the, this feature of the right path, this fourth element of the, of the noble truths, actually is going to contribute to my, <laughs> to dealing with this question of suffering and alleviating and ending suffering. Mm -hmm. I do it, but I don't get the connection. Okay? I heard you. I'm sorry. That's, I'll shut up. <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I, meant I, heard, I meant I heard you. Um, so... So there are three aspects of the, of the path, right? It's not meditation is one of three aspects. And um, there are two other aspects, which are integrity, or sometimes uh, translated as morality, sila. And um, there's wisdom. So it's a, it's a complete path. It's not just sitting and watching your breath that really has to do, you know, that, that by itself will relieve suffering. Although I think most of us will agree that just the act of sitting down, pausing, um, spending the effort to be present, to be here in this moment, has a great deal of um, benefit in terms of just uh, becoming concentrated and calm. Yes? Have you, have you, have you experienced that? Um, I, I, I feel it has a benefit, but I don't get we're, how it plays. We're it's getting, I know, we're getting to suffering, but I'm, I'm going to do this step right. by step, okay? So, so does, uh, does, the, does the meditation practice, or even as you describe it, just watching the breath, does that produce some calm and concentration for you? To some extent. To some extent. So when you say that, that kind of gives me a hint that um, you don't even feel as if that really is what's happening. Am I right or am I wrong? It's okay to be wrong. I don't mind being wrong. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not totally successful. It has some, some value, but it's not. So why do you practice? If, because if you're feeling as if, so I'm sitting and I'm, you know, watching my breath or I'm being present or whatever, and, you know, I don't really, I don't get, A, I don't get the connection, and B, I don't feel as if anything is happening. How long have you been practicing? Well, uh, uh, irregularly for many years, mm -hmm. on so and off for many is, years. So something is um, calling you to practice. So I wonder what that is. Well, 
because there's nothing else. I don't believe in prayer, and I want to find some. I want to find some route to approaching this this eternal problem, and I don't see any alternative. What's the eternal problem? The the the, the fact of our of our suffering that we are creatures who are prone who are open to suffering, that we will grow old and die and we, we feel pain and everything. And there's a way, I believe there must, might be a way to escape it or to get away from it, but I don't see any other alternative. Okay, so, but you've been practicing for all of these years and you feel as if it, you, there's no connection really. So, so I, I am curious. I'm, I, I don't completely buy your explanation because... Something has been holding you. You know, you say, I don't see any other alternatives, but, you know, there's Sufi dancing, right? You know, there's, you know, there are all kinds of different philosophical schools that you can study, and you can go, you know, square dancing or Sufi dancing or belly dancing or whatever kind of dancing you'd like to bring you some joy. There are all kinds of other ways and other ways that human beings have devised to alleviate what they've seen as suffering. But you've chosen this one. So I'm really... And, and, and when I ask, you're saying why you haven't stopped, not why you're continuing. And so I, I'm, I'm asking the question out of curiosity for myself, but also as a way for you to reflect on what it is that's happened over these years as you've been practicing. If anything, I don't want to force you into saying something's happened if nothing's happened. But something, there's, there's something there. There's even just a whiff of freedom that you've found or, um, or a little bit of peace or, you know, a way to, or a way to routinize your day. I don't know what it is, but something, something has touched you. And I just would really, even if you don't have an answer for me now, I think it's a worthwhile reflection for you. What has touched you? One, uh, just a small story. At, at one point in the New York Insight board, we were interviewing um, people to help us um, to rebrand New York Insight, right? To get a logo and something that really kind of expressed who we are and what we do and all of that. And so we interviewed a few people and this one young woman came and she quite rightly was asking us, you know, the whole board, like, what do you think New York Insight is? What do you think New York Insight is? And some of us said, well, it's a refuge. Some of us said it's a community. Some of us said it's a safe place to go to. And, you know, so then she said, well, you know, let's have some words. What do you, let's put some words to that. And one of us said transformation, and she went, snake oil. <laughs> right? And, and I, I found she didn't get the job. But... <laughs> But it was interesting, right? Because in a way, when, 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 I, when one of us said transformation, 
it was as if that's what's being offered and it must be snake oil because nobody transforms or there's some deep belief that transformation is not possible or whatever it was that really kind of got her, right, with that word. And I'm kind of reminded of that right now, speaking with you about this, because I'm because it, it has that kind of quality as if, well, there's something going on here, but... Um, it's not, you know, it's it's not what it's been marketed as or or sold as, and I'm and I don't mean to say that you're making any kinds of accusations, but that there's something happening with your own relationship with yourself and your practice that um, is bringing up this question, and I'm not sure we're getting to it. So, you know, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Well, I, all I can say is that I, I have a um, I have a trust and a feeling about the teachings of the Buddha mm-hmm. that I feel it's an authentic, good teaching, and I don't. So, can, let me stop you right there. So, tell me right now what you meant by that. What specifically? I, I don't want a general. I want something specific that makes you feel that there is something valuable in that teaching? An understanding about human nature and a a, a preoccupation with how we should live. Other religion, well, whatever, I don't... Okay, so so I, I like the first half of that. I'm not so crazy about the second half, right? Because there's something about human nature that is re- it's really helpful if we begin to understand the universal nature of who we are and how we are in this life and how we are in this world and an understanding of the commonality of um, so much of our nature that we all share together right so that so the first thing is we recognize oh this is not just me right there's something when I suffer, or when there's difficulty in life, something happens where if I'm really paying attention, I can, I can look around and I can see, oh, that person is suffering. Maybe not in the same way that I am, but there's, there's suffering there, there's suffering there. There's something about being human where suffering co-arises, if I can say that, with being human. Okay, so then the second half of it that you said was, um, and the way we should live our lives. And that's the part I'm not so crazy about. And the reason I'm not so crazy about it is because that sets up a duality between who we are and how we are and this understanding of the ending of suffering as if who we are and how we are is divorced from the understanding of suffering and the ending of suffering. Because if we can understand suffering and the cause of suffering, then there can be cessation. And, if there, and, and we, the cessation comes because we walk a particular path that was set out. 
of this wisdom and integrity and meditation. And so, but it has nothing to do with you should live this way and not that way. What it has to do with is when we meditate, when we practice diligently with some effort and concentration and, um, and mindfulness, we begin to, first of all, appreciate this predicament of being human. Yes? We, which I think you said. We start to really appreciate, oh, this being human is really difficult. <laughs> this is really tough. It is, isn't it? Anybody find it easy? Let's see, let's be seeing you, right? So that's the first thing is we really, and that's, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom, to really understand what it means to be human and where this difficulty is coming from. And this difficulty, what the Buddha said is, it comes from clinging, from, from craving and clinging, from this mind that, that thinks it knows how things should be and wants things to be other than, it, than they are. Right? But to hear that is very different from seeing it directly. So we can be in our heads all day and say, yeah, 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 great teaching, great teaching. Oh, yes, got it. But until we see it for ourselves, it's just an idea. It's really an abstraction. And, we, and every one of us has experienced that, where something in the teachings really hits us, and it hits us first through our minds, right? Because we hear words and we have to translate those words into ideas, and then we translate those ideas into feelings, and we begin to see the, the um, relevance of those ideas to our experience, to our personal experience. But we have to see them the, the relevance to our personal experience in a visceral way, not in an abstract way. We start abstractly. We start conceptually because that's the way we learn. But then the really deep learning comes through the visceral and the experiential. And that visceral and experiential does not happen if the mind is crazy, if the mind is jumping all over the place or doesn't know how to relax and let go and concentrate and be present, right? When we see that for ourselves through meditation, it's possible to start to let go. But we, it's too hard to change the habits of the mind. It's much too hard to change the habits of the mind if we don't have a deep experience of why we're doing it. Right? So, so meditation, which is you know, the, the part of the path that you asked about, the connection to the end of suffering, is the beginning of really letting the mind and the heart and the body settle into the present moment in such a deep way that we, that we don't need the Buddha to tell us about craving and clinging because we see it right here in this mind-body process. And we have to see it over and over and over and over again because we have spent a lifetime of habits, as Bill said, of running away from what's true for ourselves. 
So the, the meditation uh, practice, and we, we keep doing over and over and over again because the mind has a tendency to fly away. So we bring it back. It flies away and we bring it back. We, it flies away. And every time we bring it back, we are teaching it to be here. So every time we bring it back, it has learned more deeply how to be here and how to see clearly. And what, what is it seeing? It's seeing this tendency to cling and crave, to be um, attached to pleasant experiences, especially pleasant sensual experiences, which are impermanent and can never give us lasting satisfaction. And to push away what's unpleasant and difficult, like Bill was saying, because that's a kind of clinging and craving too. It's a kind of idea about how life should be, right? That if we were really doing it right, we wouldn't suffer because we are doing it right, right? So if we were really doing it right, we wouldn't have unpleasant experiences. What an idea, right? Because life is... is is full of pleasant and unpleasant, and neutral, mostly neutral, actually, but we don't notice that so much. So, so this ability to see directly these tendencies of mind is what starts us on the road to wisdom. And the, the, the wisdom teachings are pointers to what we need to look for to understand deeply for ourselves, not because the Buddha said it. And and he said that several times in several different places, speaking to several different audiences. He said, don't believe what I say. Actually put it into practice. And then you'll you'll know for yourself. So so we, we get into the wisdom aspect, both through hearing the teachings and having it point to where we need to look, but mostly through our practice of looking directly and seeing directly what our experience is. And when we see, oh yeah, I am suffering and I'm suffering because this is where I'm clinging or that's where I'm craving or this is what I've misunderstood or because my, or, or the sila aspect because I have not been living a wholesome and a wholesome life of integrity, and I'm reaping the consequences of that. That's part of wisdom, is to understand the connection between action and consequences, causes and effects. And then to really see how we are in, as human beings, as you, as you beautifully said, how we are as human beings, and to really begin to look to see the nature of that. And the nature of that is completely ephemeral. Every time we we try to pin ourselves down and think, this is who I am, we look and we're somebody else. We do something completely opposite to what we think we were or who we thought we were. Or we think something and say, "Who, who thought that? Right? Where'd that thought come from? It's just adventitiously appeared. So we begin to see 
the whole teaching on not-self, which I'm clearly not going to go into tonight because I don't have the time, but, but, we, we, but we really need to see that for ourselves. That's not an idea. That's, that's a truth that when we start to see that, we begin to let go because we understand how out of control we are of this life. And when we begin to let go, we're not bound. We're free. Because we're not thinking things should be this way because that's how I think it is. Or it should be that way because, or it shouldn't be that way because I think that's how it shouldn't be. But we begin to realize, oh, we need to be here and be responsive to what is true in the moment. And we can't know what is true in the moment if the mind is not still and the heart is not open. And when we see that, and we're able to respond honestly, truthfully, with integrity, and with some wisdom, there's freedom. And it's, and it's you know, it's not going to come with drum rolls and, you know, sound and light. These are very beautiful, small, gorgeous human moments of being here with wisdom and love. That constitutes freedom. So this third noble truth of cessation, you know, we can make a place out of it, right? I'm going to, suffering is going to cease and I'm going to be like this. Or suffering is going to cease and I'm going to be in that place. Right? Or I'm not going to be angry anymore. Or I'm not going to be fill in the blank. But I'm going to be fill in the blank. But actually, it's moment to moment being appropriately responsive to what is true. And what is true can be the most beautiful thing happening to you or the most difficult woundedness. But we can be free in the midst of either of those experiences or a totally neutral experience. And what is freedom? We're responding to what's true. I offer you that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering, um, in terms of practice, I understand that following the breath to quiet the mind, but then there's the situation where you have a conflict or some sort of problem that you're, let's say, obsessing about and or disturbed about, and there's the, the need to, as you said, really experience that and and feel that and um, sit with that. And I guess I'm wondering where does that fit into practice? Because I think I tend to do the okay. I'm just focusing on my breath and stop thinking about that other thing that's really bothering me. But where? Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Yeah. So, it, so, yeah. so there's a way of working with thought too, right? And that's to know thought as it's arising, the process of thought. So it's not that we. Good luck with trying to stop thinking about pink elephants right now. Right? However, every time the thought of a pink elephant arises, I can know thinking. I can know what it's like for the mind to think, for it to actually produce that image of a pink elephant or the words pink elephant or what, however it is they appear to me. Right? 
So I can know I can know what the mind is up to without actually being caught by the content of the thought. So even if you're having obsessive thought, right? And and there are a lot of different techniques that you can use with obsessive thought, like you can say not now, if it just keeps recurring and recurring and recurring, and just or see it arise and see it pass away, see it arise and see it pass away, so that you're actually knowing what it's like to think rather than thinking about your mother, right? Because the thought about your mother is not your mother. But you can be caught in the idea that it is your mother, that right now, or your roommate, right? The thought about your roommate is not your roommate. The thought about having a conversation with your roommate is not having a conversation with your roommate. It's a thought about having a conversation with your roommate. And can you actually be curious about what it feels like in the mind to have that thought rather than allowing the, the mind to get dragged down into the content of thought? It's, and it's a practice. It's a practice. So you, you can do that, and then you'll see you, you get caught by the content again. And then you notice that you're caught by the content, and you, just, you can just make a small note thinking, and just notice what it's like to think. And usually when we notice what it's like to think, I'll give you the answer again. What happens is the thought appears, it kind of grabs you, and you want to think about your roommate, and, but you, know, you remember, oh, this is thinking and it disappears. And then, and then your roommate comes up again. You want to think about it, you want to think about what you want to say to him, and you say, oh, no, thinking, disappears. And you do that over and over and over and over again, and pretty soon you notice how the mind sort of starts to get into the groove, it, it understands it, and it begins to actually just know thinking for what it is, rather than getting caught over and over and over and over again. Thank you. You're welcome. So it, that's, the, that's all we have time for. So thank you so much for the attention that you've paid tonight and for the practice that you've done um, and for these amazing questions, which, you know, I... I I think you can all relate to everybody's questions, you know. Elena's comments and and, uh, Juliet's comments about the breathing and Bill's comments about conflict and Ken's comments about suffering and the end of suffering and how the practice actually, um, you know, leads to that. And tell me your name again. Daphne. 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 And Daphne's uh, comments about thoughts and how to work with them what you begin to know is that um, the practice is, it's not like we start at the beginning and then we get to an advanced stage and then we're out of here, right? (laughs) But actually, that every moment is a moment of practice and every moment is a moment, uh, is a potential moment of completely awaken, complete awakening. That we can be awake in every single moment, even if we've had 10 hours of not being present, the moment that we recognize that we're not present, we can actually be here. That's miraculous, right? That we have the ability to direct our minds 
and to spend the effort. And it takes effort. Practice is not, um, uh, you know, just something that changes us overnight. But what we notice is that as we are willing to unfold in our practices, we're willing to do the practice so that it unfolds slowly and accumulates over time, one morning we wake up and we go, wow, I don't even recognize myself, right? That happened and I just responded in a way that's totally different. And it's mysterious how that happens. It's actually, you know, Ken is kind of touching on it. It's mysterious how it happens. But I think there are a lot... Could you just raise your hand if you've had that experience? You know? So people have had that experience. And it's, it's not just, you know, those people who are, you know, somewhere in Mount Meru. But actually, everyone, we're all here together in this human predicament, as I call it. So I really wish your practice um, depth, that you, you become so inspired by the practice and the potential, the seed that it has that you continue until it just deepens, deepens, deepens in such a beautiful way that your mind does blossom into deep wisdom and your heart opens into wide and broad and inclusive compassion. This is, this is why we practice. And it's possible. And that's what the Buddha said. He said, I, if, I, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So, and he was a man. He was a human being like all of us. And it was possible for him, so it's possible for you. It's possible for me. And we can have some faith in that. And, and hopefully that will really continue this inspiration for practice. So let's dedicate the merits of our practice to the benefit the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the complete awakening of all beings everywhere, without exception. Sending our wishes of loving-kindness that all beings be safe from all harm, that all beings be happy and peaceful, that all beings be healthy and strong of body and live with complete ease free from suffering. And if you want to take a moment to either say out loud or silently the names of beings that you know that might benefit from um, this beautiful field of practice that we've just created, please feel free to either utter their names or think of them. So we bring all these beings into the room with us and we place them on our hearts and we wish for their complete healing and their complete freedom. May it be so. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.